Please would you keep that passage over, open and uh, we're also going to turn back to chapter 8 as well. This is the last in a series of four sermons that are loosely linked under the title of the right side of history and the wrong side of history. You know that phrase, living on the right side of history or living on the wrong side of history? Well, there's a series of four. I didn't know it was going to be a series of four. Uh, initially, I thought it was going to be a series of two. And then it grew to three, and this is the last one. And they're all on the podcast, so you can listen to them back to back. Have a strong coffee and just do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, as we've recently had Easter, and we're reminded of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, And Father, we pray that you will help us to grasp something of what's so special about the death of Jesus for us and what it means for us to be followers of Jesus and what it means to call people, invite people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever get embarrassed by things? Do you ever get embarrassed by Christianity? Are you ever embarrassed about being a Christian, letting it be known that you're a Christian? I mean, we're never embarrassed by Jesus. Have you noticed that? I don't know very many Christians who are embarrassed by Jesus. In fact, I know a lot of people who are not Christians. They come from other faiths or they're atheists. And they will say, Jesus was an amazing guy. Love his character, love his teachings, most of it. I just think he was extraordinary. I don't think we're embarrassed by Jesus. So what are we embarrassed by? Well, sometimes we're embarrassed by other Christians. I have sometimes wondered... I have sometimes wondered about this because in my experience, as Christians, we are often the worst adverts for Christianity. I think sometimes in my worst moments that God would do a better job of winning people for Jesus if he just kept us out of it. But that's not how it works. It works through us. God has delegated that to us so there's no cop-out. There's no escape clause, in case you were wondering. But sometimes other Christians are an embarrassment. I have been in situations where I have wanted to leave the room or the meeting or the cafe uh, because of some brother or sister behaving the way they did. Sometimes it's the church. People have a field day, don't they, about the church, the abuses of the church and the way that it's exercised or misused power, for example. So people can be embarrassed about Christianity because of things that the church has done. But I wonder, I wonder if there's something else that causes us to be ashamed, to be embarrassed. Something that's much more serious and much more profound, much more deep-rooted And I wonder if this moment in the life of those first followers of Jesus that we call the disciples is a helpful 
and disturbing insight for us. Jesus has appeared on the scene and announced that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And if you were living in the first century, that would have rung all kinds of bells for you. It means it's the end of the age when God is going to turn things upside down in terms of political power, in terms of religion, in terms of the nations, in terms of the world. This is the history-changing announcement, which is why Jesus attracts so many followers in the first instance. It's why, the, why John the Baptist before him who announces that this is about to happen, why he draws so many people. It's not just about forgiving the sins that we did last week when we didn't pay our taxes properly or we upset Mrs. Bloggs down the street. It's much more far-reaching than that. And these people, the disciples, these initial inner circle of followers of Jesus have been on this roller coaster experience with Jesus and it's been breathtaking. Jesus has done the most extraordinary things. They've seen him control nature. They've seen him heal people. They've heard him teach. And as somebody comments and Mark records it, People were amazed because he didn't preach like the preachers they were normally used to when they got together for worship. And some of those preachers were really good. But they never heard anything like this because this came with an authority. There was something of God about this. Something about in the moment. And they were amazed. It's true Jesus has not always been cautious. He would never, ever have got on in a political party in the 21st century in Sydney or Australia. He upset people you couldn't afford to upset. He even upset his family. He was provocative. But nevertheless, nevertheless, they stick with him, these disciples, because they sense there's something amazing going on here. There's that sense of being in history, in the making. I, I uh, read part of an interview with um, one of the leaders of the 1968 student revolution. So if you look in your history books, some of you, uh, <laughs> there was a student revolt in 1968 in, across all kinds of countries, but especially in France. And uh, one of the student leaders there was being interviewed and he said, we had this sense that we were making history. Making history. And I think that's the sense that the disciples have. And it comes to a climax here in chapter 8, in the previous chapter to the one that we've just had read to us, where Jesus asks a question that all kinds of people have been asking, which is, what do people think about me? Who do they say that I am? And clearly people think there's something extraordinary about Jesus, that he's a prophet, maybe the prophet, the one who will come before everything happens. He's somebody extraordinary. And then Jesus turns the question to the disciples and he says, what do you think, guys? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, 
you're the Christ, you're the King. And, and I can imagine the kind of intake of breath at that point. They're on a roll. This is it. The world is changing. Their lives are about to be turned upside down. The life of their nation is about to be turned upside down. And in fact, the whole world is going to be changed. Because the kingdom of God is here. Because God's king is here. Because Christ means king. Wow. Definitely on the right side of history, wouldn't you say? They're going with the flow. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Don't you want to be something, some part of some movement that is changing the world? That's making history. Isn't that intoxicating? Even on a Sunday morning? Maybe we need to turn the temperature down a little bit. And then comes the shock. The shock. The absolute shock. It's there in verse 31 of chapter 8. Immediately Peter said, you're the Christ. Jesus says, about how he has come to suffer, to be rejected by the movers and shakers, the people you really need on board, the religious, the political leaders, which is all bound together, and he's going to die and then rise again. And Peter reacts towards that. I want you to notice that what he's reacting against is not the resurrection. They don't understand what that means. Chapter 9 tells us that. He's reacting above all about Jesus saying that he has come to die by being rejected. Not even die in battle, but die because he's rejected. And Jesus compounds it because having said that he's die, going to die, he calls the whole crowd around and says, by the way, if you want to be a follower of mine, then you need to, and here's the language, take up your cross and follow me. Anybody who wants to save his life must lose it, but anybody who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. That is, if you're going to be a follower of mine, then there's going to be something like a sacrifice of, what, of how you live that's involved as well. That's what Peter's reacting against. It's about Jesus' words, do you notice? It's what he said about his death. Now let's come back to us. In my experience, as I say, most Christians are not embarrassed by Jesus. Not most of the time, anyway. And even if they are, they don't usually say so. That's not the issue. We're not embarrassed by his character. We're not embarrassed by most of his teaching anyway. We're not embarrassed by his compassion. You know, I don't think we're even that embarrassed by the miracles. I remember the shock on one occasion when I was talking to some people about the gospel, about Jesus and who he was, and it came up about the miracles, and I was thinking, this is going to be difficult, isn't it? You know, 20, 20th century, it was before the new millennium. This is going to be difficult because who believes in miracles? Nobody batted an eyelid. 
We live in a world that has come to understand that there's more than you can touch, feel, and measure, by and large. There are some exceptions. Richard Dawkins would be one of them. But most people have come to realize the, the universe is weird. Strange things can happen. Even things that we might call miracles. So I don't think it's that. I don't think it's the resurrection. Getting people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, of course, is a big ask in one sense. But I don't think that's what we're embarrassed about. The thing that we're embarrassed about, in my experience, is the cross, is the death of Jesus. And the reason why we're embarrassed about the death of Jesus is because it doesn't seem very powerful, does it? So imagine you're involved in a conversation with somebody and you're talking about theology or you're talking about Jesus or you're talking about how wonderful he is or you're talking about all kinds of things. And it comes to the crunch. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What's at the heart of what Jesus is about? And what's at the heart of what Jesus is about is his death. Well, how does the death of somebody 2,000 years ago make any difference to my life? What's that got to do with life in Sydney in the 21st century? It's a really important question that people ask, isn't it? And not only that, but why do I need anybody to die for me anyway? So when we come to say, Jesus died for your sins on the cross, that what Jesus did in his death changes everything, and your response needs to be one of trust and repentance, that doesn't sound terribly powerful, does it? And I think often we're embarrassed by the cross, by the death of Jesus. But here's the thing. The death of Jesus is central to the gospel. The gospel is about more than the death of Jesus, but it's not about less. And if we take away the death of Jesus, we don't have a gospel. Or even if we reduce it to metaphor. We love to do that. Well, some of us do because we're not engineers, so we love metaphor. Engineers have real problems in my experience. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. You may be the exception, but in my experience, engineers have real problems with metaphor. And so we make a metaphor of the cross. Death of Jesus speaks of sacrifice for a great cause or for people. We use it at things like Anzac Day or Remembrance Day when we talk about the death of people and the battlefields of the First and Second World War in particular. We talk about sacrifice. But the death of Jesus isn't just a metaphor. Something happened that changed the world and made things different for everybody. It achieved something. The death of Jesus is central to why he came and to who he is. Jesus died for the sins of the world so that you and I might enter the kingdom of God. And take that away and there's no gospel. Just tell people how wonderful Jesus is. Talk about his amazing life. Talk about his love. But don't talk about the death of Jesus and that's not the gospel. Present people 
with hope because Jesus brings hope, but don't present the death of Jesus as the means to that hope, and that's not the gospel. To remove the death of Jesus from the gospel is to get rid of the gospel. To reduce it to metaphor means we don't have a gospel at all. And you know, that's a problem. That embarrassment that we have with the death of Jesus. That unwillingness often to come to the point. Tony is so good at this. He has this thing about we need to open our mouths. (laughs) We'll open our mouths about all kinds of things. Cricket, soccer, tennis, the new baby, the new extension, the holidays. All kinds of things. We'll even talk about theologies. Well, some of us do. I like talking about theology because I'm just weird. I realize that's not everybody. Some of you like talking about building bridges. But when it comes to talking to people about the death of Jesus for them, how they need his death, how they need to trust him and come to repentance and faith in the death of Jesus, we are not always very good at opening our mouths. And our embarrassment is a problem. Have a look, would you, at chapter 8 and verse 38. We're getting into the Bible now, so you should be on page 1011. Page 1011 in the Bibles. Chapter 8 and verse 38. These are the words of Jesus. He says, if anybody is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Do you notice He talks about there of me and my words? Do you notice how those two things are linked? Of me and my words? What are His words? It's the gospel. And what's at the heart of the gospel? It's the death of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is this. If you're embarrassed by the gospel, you're embarrassed about Jesus. You got that? If you're embarrassed by the gospel, and the heart of the gospel is the death of Jesus, you're embarrassed about Jesus. Well, what's going on here? Let's explore this a little further. We're going to get into chapter 9. I love the contrast between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8 has got this high point. You're the Christ. Then Jesus says he's going to die. And so you can imagine the elation suddenly turns to anger and despair, despondency. And then Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. And suddenly he's different. He is transfigured. And something has happened to him and they get a glimpse that there is something beyond the carpenter from Nazareth. There is something truly extraordinary about Jesus. That what they thought, or at least their thinking that there was something of extraordinary about him, is in a sense confirmed here by the experience on the mountain where he's transfigured in front of them. And then two other people appear, Elijah and Moses. I've I've sometimes wondered, 
Just this is an aside, okay? I've sometimes wondered how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. I, I, I mean, do you think they wore badges? Elijah, Moses. Oh, maybe Jesus said, "Hey, hey, Moses, oh, uh, I want you. I want to introduce you to Peter and James and John. Peter, James, and John. This is Moses. Really? Yeah, this is Moses. You mean that Moses? You, you don't mean the Moses who lives in Nerida Street? Then this, that Moses. Really? Uh, yeah, and I've got another shot for you here. This is Elijah. Uh, Elijah, this is Peter, James, and John. Who? I don't know how they knew. The more important question is why it's Elijah and Moses. Why Elijah and Moses? What's the significance of that meeting of those three? Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Well, both Elijah and Moses are involved in rescuing God's people in dramatic ways. Moses famously leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to at least the edge of the promised land. He's the great deliverer. Elijah, too, is involved in a rescue mission that's dramatic, although not ultimately successful. You remember there's that amazing incident on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal are there and they're the stooges of the regime and especially the queen Jezebel. And that worship of Baal, the false gods, that false worship is so destructive and so evil for God's people. And Elijah fearlessly confronts the prophets of Baal and, and the king and his wife. He risks his neck to confront them in order to restore God's people to the worship of the Lord. So both of them are associated with deliverance. Secondly, both of them are associated with what the Old Testament talks about. The first part of our Bible talks about in terms of God doing something at the end of everything. That when God brings about his kingdom, in some way it will be associated with Moses and Elijah. So I can imagine the disciples there thinking, wow, this is it. This is fantastic. We've got Jesus who's shining like a neon light. And we've got Moses and Elijah. This is big stuff. Something else about Moses and Elijah. Moses represents everything that centers around the temple, the priesthood, the establishment, if you like the things that were utterly central to Israel's experience. And Elijah represents the voice of protest. Those voices that run all through Israel's history of men and sometimes women who were willing to stand up and be counted and condemn injustice and condemn spiritual de decline and declension and, as the Bible puts it, adultery fearlessly to try and win people back. Elijah represents the radical voice. So you've got those two figures, Moses, the temple and the establishment and the law and the priesthood. Elijah, a bit like John the Baptist, standing up and calling people to repent fearlessly. And so, as I say, I imagine that Peter and... Uh, the others are thinking, wow, maybe that stuff in chapter 8 about the cross was just Jesus being weird. 
Because he says some weird things sometimes, and we don't understand what he's saying. So maybe it was just an aberration. We just didn't understand that. Because we seem to be back on track here. World's about to change. I mean, we have got, well, we've got the voice of prophecy. We've got the prophet, that's Elijah. We've got the priest, that's Moses. All we need is a king. Well, we've got one. He's called Christ. He's Jesus. So we've got prophet, priest, and king. Let's go. Take down the citadels. Bring about the revolution. Bring in the kingdom. I, I suspect something like that was going on in Peter's head, although verse 5 does say he had no idea what was going on. But he does say this. Let's build three shelters. And I imagine him thinking, I think it's all coming together. I, I don't know what this means, really. So I'm just hamming it. But let's build three shelters. Prophet, priest, and one for Jesus, the king. And then do you notice what happens? Have a look at the text. A cloud comes down. And a voice comes. That is, God shows up. The voice is the voice of God. Listen to what he says. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. The son whom I live. And then listen to the next bit. Listen to the next bit. In verse 7, what does it say? Listen to him. Why does God say that? Do you think? Could it be because they haven't been listening to Jesus? In fact, they have opposed what he said. What's he been talking about? The necessity of his desk, death. What, is, what have they been saying? Absolutely not. Here's the voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah disappear. And there's just Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, the man who's done these extraordinary things but has said these very enigmatic and provocative things and disturbing things about his death. And the voice has said, listen to him. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is this. The era of Moses and Elijah has come to an end. The meeting with Moses and Elijah is not Hey, Jesus, don't worry, you've got us with you. In case you felt you needed a bit of help, there's Moses and there's Elijah, the three of us together. No, their era is coming to an end. In fact, has ended. They are signing off. There's a wonderful incident in chapter 14 and verse 62, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out and people think he's calling for Elijah because there's this belief that Elijah will come to rescue God's people. And they say he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up. And Elijah doesn't show up. Elijah's never going to show up anymore. In fact, he's already been. That's what the discussion is about as they come down the mountain. Elijah has already been. His name is John the Baptist and they did what they chose to him, which was to murder him. The era of the John the Baptists and the Elijahs turning up to rescue are over. It's the end of the era of Moses as well. The temple is over. That is gone. From now on, 
what brings in the kingdom, what brings in this new age is the death of Jesus. That's the new age that's breaking in and it comes about through the death of Jesus. Let's pull all this together. I want you to go back to chapter 8 and verse 38. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this Sinful and adulterous generation doesn't mean that everybody was having sex with everybody else's wives and husbands and things. Some of them might have been, but that's not the point. It's a spiritual phrase. It means they were spiritually bankrupt. Spiritual adulterers. It's Old Testament language. I'm sorry if it offends in 21st century Sydney. Get over it. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this age... The Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be ashamed of them when the new age, the new era breaks in, which is what he's referring to when he says, when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What's the new era that's going to break in? Well, look at chapter 9 and verse 1. He says, some of you are going to see it. Some of you standing here will be alive when this happens. So he is not talking about what Christians call the second coming of Jesus. This is not about the return of Jesus. So what does he mean when he talks about the Son of Man coming in his Father's glory with the holy angels? He's talking about the coming into the kingdom. And when does the kingdom come in glory? On the cross. On the cross. That's when it comes. Through the death of Jesus. Notice the language of shame here. If anyone is ashamed of me, um, I'm, I'm an Australian, but I'm also English, and I, I was around in England for a long time, and the word ashamed in England for an Englishman is really hard because often it's, it's just a, it's, it's a matter of um, manners. You know? <laughs> I was really ashamed about what you did the other day. I really wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> you know, you upset so-and-so, and um, it, was, it was a cultural gaffe. <laughs> That's what it means to be ashamed if you're English. Uh, I don't know what it's like. I don't know enough to have learned whether that's spread over here to Australia. I do know that some cultures are shame cultures. If you come from a shame culture, you'll understand more about this. To be ashamed means to repudiate. It's not just that I was mildly embarrassed by it. It's to repudiate. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If anyone repudiates me, is ashamed of me and my words in this age, then the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be ashamed of them. They will be repudiated by Jesus. If you repudiate Jesus and his words, that is the gospel, then Jesus will repudiate you. Some of you might be thinking, that's a bit vindictive, isn't it? That doesn't sound very nice. Well, think about it. The only way to get into the kingdom, the only way to have our sins forgiven, the only way to be put right with God, the only way that the kingdom comes in is through the death of Jesus. There isn't another way. And so if somebody rejects the gospel, there isn't another one. There's no second way in. And that's why Jesus uses this language here. 
If anybody is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed. When the new age comes in, and the new age has come in, it came in through the death of Jesus. Final pulling together. What are we supposed to do with this? How can we be ashamed of Jesus and his words? Well, if you say no to the death of Jesus, if you say, I don't need the death of Jesus, I don't need to put my trust in Jesus, I don't need to receive forgiveness through his death for me. I love Jesus, but I don't want that. I don't need that. Then you're rejecting Jesus. Second way we can do it, because Jesus expands it, doesn't he? If anybody wants to be my follower, he must take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who wants to save their life must lose it. It's to say, I love Jesus, happy about the cross, but I don't want it to change my life too much. I don't want to have to sacrifice too much. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we sacrifice for things that are really important to us. There is nothing more important than Jesus and the gospel. And the third way that we can be ashamed, embarrassed, is simply to be willing to talk about anything and everything else, but never talk about Jesus and the gospel. Never talk to our friends. Never talk to our family. Never talk to our neighbors. Never put ourselves in a situation where we might be embarrassed, made to feel awkward, so we don't speak about Jesus. That's to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Remember, if we're ashamed of the gospel, we're ashamed of Jesus. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them in this new era of the kingdom. Two last verses and then I'll finish. The Apostle Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16, and then in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to you, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The death of Jesus may not seem very powerful, but it is. Don't be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, please would you help us. Please would you help us to open our mouths to speak about Jesus. And Father, please would you give us such an experience of your love in Jesus. Such an experience of your forgiveness and change Sometimes we can't help but let it out. Father, please would you make us passionate for people around us who are, as the Scriptures put it, without God and without hope in the world. Give us a burden, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.